0: Welcome everyone. I'm Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined once again by uh, one of the world's most famous PRO clinicians with over 30 years of experience, Professor Vivica Strand from the Division of Immunology and Rheumatology at Stanford University. Hi Vivica, welcome. Thank you for giving up some of your time. I know how busy you are. Um, Let's just start with a bit of um, your background. What are you working on at the moment? What things excite you at the moment in rheumatology? What are you looking forward to?
1: Well, I think, you know, we're still in search of more therapies as usual. <laughs> uh, it's been pretty interesting with lupus lately, particularly with ULAR. And so that was good to see some positive studies, some new approvals, which I'm sure you're also anticipating. Yeah. And. Uh, Again, a lot of interest in patient reported outcomes with the JAK inhibitors. And why? I think it's because there's been such good responses and so rapid responses. And that has a lot to do with patients realizing that these therapies are effective and therefore they wanna stay on them.
0: Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in your paper, which we're coming to in a minute. Has the oral surveillance uh, study knock the jacks around, or is it really a TOFA-specific effect? And we still haven't seen the peer-reviewed paper, of course.
1: Yeah, we haven't. I think it's knocked knocked the uh, jacks around a bit. I think people are a little bit more circumspect about prescribing them. I think they're particularly more worried about using them in patients who are older with more comorbidities. However, I have no good way of explaining those findings. I don't know why there should be a difference between either TNF and TOFA for either malignancies or myocardial infarctions. And the only thing that I can see is that the patient population may have explained it to some extent because it looks like the majority of of the findings were in smokers who were particularly enrolled from the United States. But that doesn't really help with understanding the data. I think also, even though these numbers were good for tocilizumab versus a tanner I think the study was underpowered for tofacitinib versus either TNF inhibitor. And so we see that there's not equivalency or non-equivalency, but we also see that these, these risk ratios are really pretty small differences
0: yeah they're very small differences one in many hundreds to number needed to harm and just a small imbalance in smoking at baseline or uh, aspirin use at baseline would be enough to explain the difference so we'll have to wait and see won't we has it affected UPA across the states do you think or is it uh, yes is it considered class effect
1: it is it is and we're anticipating that the FDA, when they finally come out with their decision after they're done working with COVID, which seems to be all they're spending time on, um, will come out with something that will be more about class labeling than it will be about TOFA because they've held up, of course, upa for two indications, TOFA for one, but they're also held up abrocitinib for atopic derm.
0: Right. So how's COVID affecting you now? You've lived with it for years. Um, what's happening with your work and what COVID's doing to, to your state?
1: Well, we're still pretty much closed down in terms of the hospital and so on. Patients can get visitors one or one at a time, restricted to two total. Um, they can't be uh, accompanied when they come in. And we still have a lot of patients who are doing virtual visits as well, and everybody is still using masks, and they're being asked at restaurants whether they're vaccinated.
0: You think TeleHealth's here to stay now?
1: Oh, I definitely think it's here to stay.
0: And any rules must see first time face-to-face, or it's going to be open slather?
1: Well, I think it's really difficult. To not see a patient first time face-to-face or to at least convince them with the first time virtual that they need to come in for a face-to-face particularly because we need an exam and until we have experienced patients they don't know how to describe their findings to us but we have found that using either rapid three or raid during the virtual visit is helpful so in other words rather than just having the patients fill it out and read us off the results or send us the results, going through the questions with them is actually quite helpful and doesn't take very long, particularly Mm -hmm. either one of those. Of course, I like RAID because it asks about some other things that RAPID-3 Mm -hmm. doesn't, but either way, getting their their answers to these questions is quite helpful.
0: What have you guys been doing? Well, we've, we've had telehealth for 10 years now, funded by the government, because we have people who live six, eight hours drive from a general practitioner, right. leave-alone specialist. So, right. But we've always assisted face-to-face first time. So we're about the last group of physicians who examine anybody. So we think that's important to start with. And it's what you find outside the joints that the patients didn't even know they had heart murmurs, thyroid lumps, enlarged livers, spleens, everything. So we insist on first-time. Oh, yeah, I
1: I couldn't agree more.
0: So um, I've been listening to a few American podcasts, Pivot and Kara Swisher and whatever, and it scares me when Amazon is going to get into telehealth and that because it's cheaper, they're going to convince the American population that that's the way to go and that's Mm -hmm. great medicine. So not only are they going to get into pharmacy, send your script to Amazon or give it back to you the next morning free.
1: No, I'm not happy with that one either.
0: Oh, look out. All right, let's talk about your paper. Um, Just to start with, why are PROs important? Clinicians will always say, I've never seen a PRO not go in the same direction as swollen joint counts and ESRs and people doing well clinically. So what's the big deal about PROs?
1: Well, PROs get at the things that when patients still say they're not doing well, even if their joint counts are doing well, that kind of uncovers it. Another thing is a goal for therapy. Setting a joint goal whenever treatment is added or switched takes almost no time to ask at subsequent visits if there's been an agreement about a goal that a patient would like to set that's a reasonable goal, something they can attain. And asking that question at every visit actually gives you some idea of their progress and gives them some idea of their progress. The other issue is that a lot of our PROs get better by numbers getting smaller, which is not great for visuals. So that's still one of the reasons why I like looking at the SF-36, because health-related quality of life, as it gets better, it gets bigger, and it gets bigger across these eight domains, and that's, in my mind, a much broader aspect of how is a patient doing, more than their arthritis and its impact on them. And you remember that the impact of, say, RA on a patient is quite different perceived by them. And how we see it. We think of morning stiffness, we think of the joint counts and pain and function, of course. But you know, we don't think about whether how their sex is doing unless we have that kind of relationship. We don't ask them about their sleep disturbance or what's going on with their work or their ability to work within the home or get along with their family and friends or have social activities.
0: You mentioned morning stiffness notoriously inaccurate, I would have guessed. What do you think?
1: I think it's fairly inaccurate. I think in a clinical trial, it turns out to be pretty good. But we're talking about duration, which is really all that's been validated. And severity is a big part of it. And I agree with you because I think morning stiffness in many patients is evident throughout the day. And is not really a good measure of how they're doing.
0: And what about fatigue? Very difficult symptom to treat is there an almost an irreversible element of fatigue? Instead of zero to 10, should it start at four?
1: Well, I think that we're beginning to wonder whether there is an irreversible element (laughs) because it's so prominent. But I think that one of the things we see is when you prescribe a JAK inhibitor, patients actually feel improvement in fatigue fairly rapidly. And so, those kinds of improvements now give them a positive attitude that they may see change. And it may not be something that is going to be a fibromyalgia-like symptom with them because, oh, that's my disease.
0: You've, you've always worked closely with the FDA, give them advice, whatever. And this is a funny question, but I've just noticed in RA trials, hack, which may have an irreversible element with people with years of disease, is one of the secondary endpoints. But in PSA studies, they seem to have, you know, joint count and hack as one of the two primaries. Why do do they insist on hacking in PSA, even when they've had years of PSA in all the studies and likely to have an irreversible element? I never understood that.
1: Well, they're not really insisting on it, but because they're using ACR response criteria for PSA, that means hack is automatic secondary. Um, I think that the composite measure is going to start to be more important, but also been trying to convince them to look at health related quality of life and fatigue in PSA as we do in RA. And as you know, they did just give labeling for fatigue in RA for Upatacitinib. Okay,
0: okay. so let's get back to your paper, recently published in Rheumatology, the British Journal of Rheumatology. It looks at upatacitinib, a selective JAK1, and it looks across the study, the select early, select monotherapy studies. Would you mind just, for those who aren't familiar with those studies, telling them what they were?
1: Yeah, so what's really nice about these two is that it's monotherapy with upatacitinib. So we don't have to try to figure out whether methotrexate adds or not. And in select early, these are methotrexate naive patients for the most part. So it's methotrexate versus UPA 15 and UPA 30. And the primary endpoint essentially is 12 weeks. Then we're looking at essentially select monotherapy. And there, these are patients who've already been on RA, I mean, on methotrexate. And so the methotrexate is essentially their placebo but then they're withdrawn from methotrexate if they're receiving upadacitinib, so they get 15 or 30 there. So it's nice, we're looking at a really responsive early disease population, and then we're looking at a, the a csd ir population, which is where most of the trials have been. And we're looking at week two outcomes as well as week 12 and 14.
0: And, okay, so... Um, what did you actually study and how, what were the kind of methods that you used in this study?
1: Well, we looked across the PROs, but what's more important is not just how good they improved. We looked at the percentage of subjects who reported improvements that were clinically meaningful, meaning MCID or greater. But something else that I think is important is we looked at the percentage of subjects who reported values at either 12 or 14 weeks that met or exceeded normative values because we have norms for HACC. We have a normative value for, for facet fatigue. We have age and sex match norms for health related quality of life, SF36. We use the US ones or you can use UK or Australian ones. But that means that patients can actually see that they are, they are able to function and feel as if they didn't have arthritis because we're comparing them to a healthy normative population. And the other value of that is we can also look across different rheumatic diseases and see differences.
0: 12 weeks long enough?
1: Yeah, it is because we know that we don't want to placebo expose for longer than that, because then the hack does deteriorate. I don't really believe that there's an irreversible part of the hack except in patients with really long disease duration, those to experience their disease before the biologics even became available. But there is deterioration if you give them placebo for longer than 12 weeks. We showed that through the OMRAC effort.
0: Interestingly, the empty. Well, you can mention the results and then I'll, I'll ask the question. So what did you find in this study?
1: Well, the interesting things that we found, of course, were that both eupatocitin and 15 and 30 were effective and statistically better than methotrexate or statistically better than placebo in the two trials respectively. We also saw that these improvements that were clinically meaningful were statistically different with both doses of upatacitinib and the percentage of patients who reported scores that met or exceeded normative values was statistically better. What's also interesting is that the baseline scores are gonna be lower in the DMARD-IR population, yet Mm -hmm. the changes are relatively similar. So they may come up with not as large improvements overall, but the deltas are quite similar, which is very interesting, I think. And it says to us now that our patient populations are starting to be much less, shall we say, DMARD uh, irreversible, DMARD resistant. They are starting to be having been treated early enough that each time they get a new therapy, they are able to respond, which I think is a real positive.
0: Uh, And the response was quite quickly, wasn't it? You said two weeks is-
1: is Two weeks we see statistical improvements in both studies. And the difference is, you know, the patients in the methotrexate naive study, they had about two to three years of disease where the ones that were IR had about six to seven and a half disease duration and they'd been on methotrexate roughly about three years, three to four years. So we're not looking at an early, shall we say DMART-IR population, but then we're looking at a methotrexate naive population where we can see them have great responses to methotrexate, but even better ones with upadacitinib. In general, the 30 was better than the 15, but not always that much better.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to say there's a dose response in the, um, not in the NAIVE study, but the IR study, which is interesting because in many of the clinical trials there's a dose response, 15 to 30. So the fascinating thing about the JAX is that when you looked at select, compare, RA Finch 1, the statistical superiority over the gold standard of plus methotrexate, it's not driven by swollen joints or ESR. It's driven by pain, patient global, physician global. Yep. Yep. And these drugs aren't supposed to cross the blood-brain barrier. So what is the mechanism? Is it peripheral nervous system uptake with IL-6 reduction amongst other cytokines? What drives that pain difference with the Jax?
1: I think the rapid onset of benefit is one. Now, how much of that is central and how much of that is peripheral, I certainly can't tell you. Um, certainly, the cytokines are downregulated with the JAX, and that happens very rapidly. But clearly, some of some of what we see is central sensitization and so on is responsive to JAX. It must be, or we wouldn't see these large improvements in pain and fatigue. So I think I think there are several things here. Maybe it's also the cycle of early response, then meaning the patients are going to be much more adherent. And that also helps.
0: And do you think there is an argument for earlier access to some of these things? In our country, six months at least failing too conventional, um, Smolin has always argued against this stuff Without failing methotrexate first, and you you know this is PROs, but you could argue the same with all the other measures. Oh yeah. That a, a Jax against MTX is a superiority. Um, if it wasn't a cost difference, say roll the clock forward ten years when there's no cost difference with generics, maybe should we be contemplating a more effective agent? before a less effective agent. Can you see that? I
1: absolutely agree. And also we're gonna talk about those DMARD-naive patients. They tend to be younger. They have less comorbidities. They're less at risk for any of the adverse events that may or may not be class effects of JAX or simply related or reflective of the JAX mechanism. And so in general, If costs weren't an issue, I would definitely think so. And the other part of it is if you fail one, we've got not much data yet, but it's growing to say you can respond to another. So it's not like the class effect we see with TNF inhibitors.
0: That brings me to the question of selectivity. Do you believe there's any evidence that Jacqueline selectivity has an efficacy or a safety benefit on the available data out there? I haven't
1: been convinced of it yet. Looking across all the data, including filgotinib, which unfortunately we don't have, and looking both at the PROs and and the safety profiles and the efficacy, I really don't see a difference. I know that you can show differences, but I I don't see them clinically.
0: Okay. So what would the take-home message be from your study and what would you recommend the practicing clinician to do, particularly in the PRO areas, which they tend not to measure? And, you know, you could, you could have people answer the hack in the waiting room before they even come in to see you or the raid or the whatever.
1: Right. Well, I, I like Rapid3 or the raid in the waiting room, you know, on, on the call if it's virtual, but I think it really helps setting a goal when treatment is started or changed i think that's very very important and it's a quick question a quick a quick question about fatigue is useful because it gives you some idea depression anxiety those all contribute to fatigue as well so those are the things that i think are useful to do in regular clinical practice do i want people to do spidergrams no but they could do them and they could get they could get you know the findings, and as, as health-related quality of life improves, they get larger, and you can then measure them against a normative value and see how close you're coming to a goal. So I wish that we had more of those, because the PROs that get positive with getting better is a real incentive for patients. It's, it's a reflection of improvement.
0: So moving forward, the next step, you have looked at this particular study, anything else on the horizon with with PROs and and JAX in particular?
1: Well, I, I hope that we're looking more at, you know, these other points that get to how patients are feeling and functioning. I also think that patient global is still really important in all the ways your disease affects you. How are you doing today? That kind of gets at What are the impacts I haven't asked you about? And that's a lot different than currently our FDA is looking at patient global impression of change. Well, with a chronic disease, how do you put change into context? It's much better to just ask, how is your perception of your disease and how is it doing today? And is there improvement? Do you feel better? I also think that showing patients that they can start reporting values that meet or exceed normative values is an encouragement because you know we're seeing that in as many as 50 or 80% of our patients, even on the jacks, even as early as week 12 or 14. And we talk about number needed to treat, which is clinically or, or economically meaningful if it's 10 patients or less is essentially one over the difference in response rates between active and placebo. Well, if you get an NTs of somewhere between, you know, five and 10, that's very meaningful. And that's what we're seeing with all of these jack inhibitors.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, Peter Taylor presented at ACR, I think. They're now looking at pain in those people who get 50% improvement, 70% improvement. Right, right, right. Do you see much value in that stuff?
1: Well, I think 30 and 50 makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure I'm going to go to improvement uh, down to a level of 20 or 70%. But I think the 30 and 50 makes sense because that's a, a level that I think patients perceive. But it's really hard to define you know, what's no pain, which is what patients want. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to ask about, about that, because if you've got chronic pain, you're having pain every day even if you're not having it for the, for the majority of the daytime, you're not gonna be sitting there saying, oh, well, it was only this much yesterday and it's this much today. They essentially don't want any. So yeah. activities are important.
0: Okay, thank you so much. Any, uh, any final comments you wish to uh, pass on to the clinicians? We should take PROs more seriously and it in our daily assessment. I think so,
1: because you can do it fairly efficiently. I'm not asking that you have a whole lot more paperwork and stuff on your electronic record.
0: (laughs) Okay. So thank you again for your time. We always appreciate having a chat. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slides that are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media that you do, that you use, and let us know what you think. We enjoy the feedback. Thank you for your time, Vubika. Great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk to you. Thank you, Peter. Bye-bye. All
0: the best.